This is the Place for a Purpose podcast. We want to help you live out what Jesus said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love your neighbor, including your next door neighbors. So we're going to keep neighboring on your mind by encouraging you with practical ways to connect with those next door so you can live knowing you've been placed for a purpose because your address is not an accident and neither is your neighbor's. Welcome back. We are so excited to have Cass Monaco here. She has served with crew for most of her adult life and is currently the VP of Missiology and Gospel Engagement for Crew's Family Life. She has her PhD and did her doctoral work on reimagining gospel conversations, which is the title of her new book coming out this spring and what we're going to be talking about today. She lives in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina with her husband, Bob, and we are so excited to have you here today, Cass. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So before we dive into what it means to reimagine having gospel conversations, you describe yourself as a missiologist. So what is a missiologist? What does that title mean exactly? I am so glad that you asked that question because almost everyone asked that question. And I asked that question as I entered into the missiology program. So I think it is not a real well-known discipline, but so I'm excited to be able to share a little bit about it. I consider missiology a theological discipline, and it seeks to understand the creative and redeeming works of God through the scripture and through the mission of God that is woven across the canon of scripture. The other thing that I love about missiology is that it also relies on, leans into, borrows from other disciplines like anthropology, philosophy, sociology. And so all those things help to inform us as we seek to understand the creative and redeeming works of God. So it's, for me, a lot of fun. You really study the history of missions, right? That was part of what I studied, yes. And I think that the reason why I emphasize the theological aspect of missiology is because I think that's the place that I learned the most. Not that I knew all the other information about the history of mission, which I learned a lot about that too, but I, I think the discovery of the mission of God through Scripture was surprising and comforting and encouraging as I think about, uh, about gospel conversations today in our context. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think we're going to be getting into more of that. But we also wanted to ask, so you've been on staff for with Crew for about 40 years, and you knew the founder, Bill Bright. In your book, you said that you really esteemed his zeal and conviction about talking about Jesus. And he believed that everyone was willing to hear the good news of God's love and purpose for their lives. But as you continued with Crew over the years and you continued to have more and more gospel conversations, it seemed like people were increasingly spiritually uninterested. And you said that it was kind of confusing and disorienting to you at times. And you even said it made you think about giving up sharing your faith altogether. Now, knowing you, I know that you would never give up sharing your faith, but there was probably that feeling. So could you share more about those conversations that you had that made you feel some of that disorientation? Like you said, I knew Bill Bright. I don't know if he'd know me if he were to run into me at some point, but I 
feel like I was raised under his leadership as a student. I became a Christian when I was in college and got involved in crew right away and learned to share my faith right away. Learned to, I was trained to use a little booklet called Four Spiritual Laws that Bill Bright designed back in the 50s. And I was one of those. I was trained and I trained probably thousands of other people to use that booklet and carried a stack of four spiritual laws in my backpack everywhere I went. I gave them out, even if I could only have a short conversation with someone. But then probably right around the beginning of the 21st century, the early 2000s, I happened to be with some students at Portland State University in Oregon. It was my practice, as had been for most of my staff life up to that point. We would meet regularly and go out into the student population on campus and attempt to engage in a conversation and particularly to share the gospel, to share the four spiritual laws. I think at that time we were using what is now the Knowing God Personally booklet at that point. And on this particular day, it was a fall day. I remember so well this day. And a friend of mine and I, a student, a PSU student, went into the student center. We wandered around the cafeteria. It was lunchtime and we found a student who is by herself. And we introduced ourselves and asked her if she'd be willing to take our spiritual interests survey. The survey is something crew has traditionally used for many years. I think people still use it today. And she said, yes. So we sat down and we introduced ourselves a little bit more. She shared with us that she was a freshman and this was right after the term had started. She grew up on a farm in central Oregon. It's startling to be in downtown Portland, having been raised on a farm and So we kind of took that all in, and then we asked her the first question on the survey, which is, who, in your opinion, is Jesus Christ? And I can still, I have the look on her face burned in my memory, because she looked afraid, confused, bewildered, and she just, I just remember so well, she said, I have no idea what that is. And for me, sharing the gospel at Portland State is a crazy experience a lot of times. But usually when we talk to freshman students who were raised in quintessential America, we don't run into people that have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. And I think that was the beginning of my confusion, I think. I was startled and then thought, wow, if this is happening. And I'd had numerous conversations leading up to that that didn't go as well as they used to, I'd say. And then this was sort of like a pinnacle moment for me. You contrast in your book the difference between what you call more of a gospel presentation to this shift to having a meaningful gospel conversation. And you already shared about the four spiritual laws being kind of that outline of the gospel, but share more about what it meant for you to shift into more of a conversational approach. Well, I think beginning with that, and then like you asked earlier, I was really tempted because of that and a few other similar experiences. I didn't know what to say to her for one thing, because she was afraid. And then for another thing, I began as I was moving along and praying and about this and feeling this unfamiliar feeling, I guess, and sharing the gospel, the Lord brought people across my path. And I was finding myself in conversation My husband, Bob, and I were on a flight from North Carolina to Oregon once we moved here. 
And we sat next to a woman who was raised Pentecostal and had recently become Wiccan. And that was another thing like, oh, wow, this is, I've never talked to someone who's had that experience. I've talked to Buddhists and Hindus and social revolutionaries. And in the past, I realized that most of the people I ever talked to leading up to this moment, for me at least, were either Catholic or Protestant. A few were agnostic. Maybe now and then I talked to an atheist. But all of a sudden, I was finding myself in these conversations, and I don't think I talked to anyone who was Protestant or Catholic or even agnostic. It's always this sort of spiritual belief going around. And so I realized that I couldn't start in the same place. I couldn't start by assuming that people that I talked to knew who, that we even would define the word God the same, sin the same, the Bible. A lot of people had no idea what that was. And so what it forced me to do was to be more inquisitive. I mean, I was on a research journey too, so it piqued my curiosity. But I also want people to know Jesus. And so I realized that in order to continue a meaningful conversation, and that if they were back here like the freshmen at Portland State, that that was okay, that we were a conversation along the way for her because God is the one who draws us. And so I found confidence in that truth also. I think it's really interesting thinking about the gospel presentation versus a gospel conversation. At least for me, I think it's helpful for me to understand this cultural moment by understanding why the four spiritual laws or tools like it worked back in the 50s and 60s. And so you mentioned maybe there was more of just a general knowledge of the Bible. So you could start right at God loves you. And they're like, yep, I can pick up with that. What were some of the other reasons why a tool like the four spiritual laws or this gospel presentation style worked back in the 50s and 60s when Dr. Bill Bright started Crew. One of the stories we've all were with Crew and were around when Bill Bright was still with us, we heard the story often of how the final push to create four spiritual laws came about. He and his staff, this was in the mid-1950s, they conducted a survey with thousands of college students and discovered that most of them had believed in God, but I think it was like 87% had no idea that they could know God personally. They had no idea that God loved them. They were coming from a religious background, and their understanding of God and the Bible and Jesus, for the most part, was similar. They just didn't know they could actually really know God. I remember hearing the story many times, and then I found it in my research, too, that when Bill Bright heard the results of these surveys, he wept because God's love is what touched him so much. And the fact that people didn't know that moved him as a believer and as the leader of crew, and it resulted in four spiritual laws, which you can understand. It's a four-point outline that begins with God's love. It's followed by man's rebellion. The third law talks about Jesus Christ and what his death, burial, and resurrection means for us. And the fourth law explains how we can know God personally. So you have to have a certain bit of understanding to find yourself able to understand those four laws. Whereas that freshman at Portland State, that wasn't the place to start with her. You share about the influence of secularization 
And one of the stats that you shared in your book that really struck me was you said, and this was a Barna research quote that you were pointing out, but you said out of 69 million children and teens in Gen Z, just 4% have a biblical worldview. And then of those who do identify as Christians, only one out of 11, that's of the 4%, only one out of 11 claim to follow Jesus as a way of life. That just blew my mind. So why is it important for us as believers to understand the impact of secularization on our culture and then even in this conversation about neighboring? That's such a great question. I think I'll back up a little bit just to clarify secularization because I think usually in the church, people as believers, we tend to think of secular over here and religious over here. And this is the world. This is where we might go, but it's separate from us. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher that I drew from. He describes a secularization. And he says that it's actually, he calls it this, I love this phrase. I hope I don't lose you in this, but he calls it an explosion of belief, a supernova of belief. And so what I imagine in my mind is just this swath of belief. Christianity is just one choice among thousands and thousands of other choices. And so I think when we recognize that, we can lament that, that that's not where we imagine the U.S. would be by 2023, but it is where it is. And so how can we see that as an opportunity to introduce the gospel and Jesus into a secularized population? I think the fact that there's belief there is in our favor because we can talk about a belief that's consistent and firm and rests in a creator. I love that you referenced the uh, Crew City Research Project that Crew City did called Understanding Faith and Purpose in the City. We've seen that the findings from that, and it's been super helpful. We've talked about it on here yeah, quite we, a bit. Yeah, and I'd just love to hear from you, what was the impetus to do this project, and what were some of the things that you learned? maybe providentially in this moment that I found myself in, I was working in city with you guys. I don't know if you were quite there at that point, but the team that I was on, we were leading out in this part of city that was, that we had staff that had been working in communities and in the business world for a long time that were part of city. But there was also a new effort that we launched to begin to look at and engage with millennials in cities, but also to focus on cities. All of us that were on that team had worked in the campus ministry with Crew for many years. And all of us, like both of you, we shared our faith. We were trained to share our faith. And what was interesting is that we all, in that moment, as we began to lead out in this partially new effort in city, we all felt like I did. They joined me in feeling, how do we do this? It was crazy. And we have been burdened by that. And I remember being in a few meetings where this was our topic with other leaders and we're moving into cities that are not only diverse ethnically, but culturally and maybe economically and the jobs that people do and the ways that people live. You can't even really number them all. It's all just very different. And so that was really fun for us. And we realized then that we we needed a little help in order to figure this out, to validate 
our concerns? Are we right in what we're observing or are we just not recognizing something that we should be? What was encouraging about the research is that it validated our experiences, really, and helped begin to inform some steps forward. And we worked with a great group of researchers that did such an excellent job. And they really drilled down not only into the populations in cities around the country, but they also did really detailed research within the organization, which also helped too. And it was great for me because that's what I was doing my research on too. Was there anything surprising that you heard about crew that was eye-opening or informative? To me, what stood out, especially in light of the research I was doing around gospel conversations, was that team that did the research, one of the gentlemen is not a Christian. So he was very interesting to hear from, and we appreciated him a lot because he found as he would begin to talk to staff, and I would put myself in this too, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but us as a staff, we were hard pressed to be able to have a conversation like we're having. What he found was he would get, people would kind of move into this structured presentation. I remember hearing that from him and I thought, that's exactly what I do. I found myself, I was in this workout group with this young woman. We were running around this path. She's a lot younger than me and I'm trying to keep up with her. But she asked me, she first told me she had changed her career. And I said, oh, why is that? And she said, because I found that there was a hole in my soul. And so, wow, this is could be a gospel conversation. She asked me, what do you do? And I told her where I worked. And then it was just like I automatically tripped over my words because I felt like I had to make that presentation because I was so good at doing it in three minutes. And then I could give her a four laws afterwards. But I knew in this moment that I was in that that wasn't, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get to know her better and to understand that hole in her heart. And we eventually became, we're friends and I've been friends for the last several years. So that was a really interesting discovery that they made that spoke to me. But then also, I think through the research, we discovered that while a big percentage of 400 people that we surveyed considered Christianity as irrelevant, often unsafe, which was sobering, 87% of these 400 people also said they were willing to have a gospel conversation with Christians. And we thought, I remember my friend saying, this is good news for us. It was followed by a combination together of them saying, but we don't think Christians are prepared to talk to people who have a different point of view. And then we thought, wow, we have a lot of work to do in this situation. And I would say, just again, using myself as an example, I would say, I took that to heart. It really helped them to inform some of the steps that we continued to take in that process. I remember being in the room when you and your team shared the research findings with us at a crew conference, at a crew city breakout. And Chris grew up on staff. I don't know if you know that, but his parents are still on staff with crew. And so 40 some years later, and for me, this is my 23rd year. And as you know, my life was changed through crew and I 
was mentored by a woman named Jane that I share about a lot. And she taught me how to share my faith. And she taught me specifically how to use the gospel outline, the four spiritual laws. And like you said, the knowing God personally tool. And so I always found that super helpful as I was engaging with my sorority sisters. A lot of them didn't come from spiritual backgrounds, or if they did, they couldn't have expressed the big story of the Bible or how they could relate to God, like you said. And so for me, it was motivating to get to use a tool that helped make sense of things that helped give a structure. But then when we switched over to neighboring and we're more involved in peer-to-peer ministry, that's what we like to say. We went from the microwave to the crock pot. And in the microwave, we always say it was fun and it was fast and you saw a lot of life change. And then in the crock pot, it was a little more messy and it was low and slow. And we were in conversations like the ones you're describing. So I'd love to hear you share the five things from your research that these unchurched or non-believers were saying that they wanted from us. And was there one in particular that stood out to you or any that you said you took them to heart? As a result, the research that was done in some of these findings, we thought, wow, we have a lot of work to do. We began to, I would say several people on our team began to dig down a little deeper into the research that was gathered, which is such a great resource. I'm so appreciative for the work that that group did. And we discovered five behavior changes for us as Christians. One of my friends, Craig Van Gelder, who's a missiologist, he is fond of saying we need to behave our way into new ways of thinking. And I think these behavior changes have really helped a lot of us behave our way into new kinds of thinking. And so the first behavior change is to be present and listen, follow the conversation and not your agenda. As someone who is trained and zealous as an evangelist, every time I was on an airplane, for example, I was aware of the person that sat next to me and I was ready to engage in a few questions that would lead to an opportunity for me to fulfill my agenda, which would be to either share four spiritual laws or at least hand them one. And I did that a lot. And I would say in my memory, I don't have any really, I don't think I had any, if if I did, there weren't many bad experiences doing that. But I realized that I was so intent on my own agenda that I didn't even really notice the person in front of me a lot of times that I didn't take the time to understand where they were coming from. And I think that's your analogy of the crockpot. I think it takes time to do that. And in our culture today, where Our findings indicated that people feel unsafe around Christians. The percentage is enough that we don't want that. We don't want people to feel unsafe around Jesus. The second behavior changes is to find common ground, to build a relational bridge. Now, this isn't startling to us. That I would say that we've probably taught that maybe in a different way over the years, but I think in our changing culture, in the diversity explosion that's happening, it really helps to find common ground with people who are different from us and to help them find common ground with us too. And that 
very well may take many conversations for that to happen. We have to get to know people and get past that barrier. I have found even in my experience. I think the third behavior change follows closely behind that one to walk in their shoes and understand their story. And I have found that you find common ground, but then you also don't just let that hit you in a flat way, be put on their shoes and really listen a little more in conversations with people who are different from me, whether religiously or ethnically or otherwise, that if I really stop and think about what it would be like to be in their shoes at whatever moment it might be, it changes how I answer. There's a humility there. Yes. For an example, I have two friends that don't know Jesus yet, but I talk with them. They know that I'm a believer, that I'm a follower of Jesus. I share very openly with them about the God I love. And they're, they both have had different situations in their lives that I often tell them, I'm praying for you. They don't, they come from, one comes from a religious Jewish background, another comes from a secularized background. And I am so aware that that could sound so trite to them after a while. Because the things we've been praying for haven't actually come about how they would hope. And for sure, me too, as I'm talking about God, I want him to answer that so that they go, wow, that was God, but they're happening. But I love them. And I tell them that I know I say this to you a lot, but I am praying for you. And I do know that God knows who you are, that God knows what you're going through. And they receive that from me. But we've been friends now for probably three years um, through some pretty rough things. Sometimes understanding someone's story to that level is takes a lot out of us. I really care about them. And I go out onto the sea of their emotion and their hardship and their challenges. I feel for them and it takes time. Like a lot of times we'll meet for a couple hours and I leave depleted in a way but so hopeful because I know God has them in my life and has other believers in their life. I'm not the only one. Then another thing that I think has been hard for me is to talk like a real person. You words meant for people and not for the pews. And I think I find that challenging with the people I interact with. Even when I talk about God, I try to explain a little bit about who God is to me and what the Bible says about God. But even talking about sin or talking about various issues, I try to clarify or ask questions. But I think before I was really comfortable with using for laws has and knowing God personally booklet, there's a lot of words in there that today, if we use the word God, sin, even Christ's death on the cross, people load those words with meaning we never intended for them to have. It's stepping back and taking a different angle. And then finally, I feel like I've been talking too long, but tell a better story. <laughs> we wrote them down too. <laughs> we have them and we remember. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad that to create a better story. And one of the things I want to clarify on that is that we've had people question us on that. Like, are we supposed to tell a different story than the gospel? And well, of course not. We, that's not true at all, but Sometimes people's experience with God or Christianity is forms the reason behind their fear and their hesitation to interact with Christians. And I think as we changed our behavior in all these ways, we can tell a different story than the one they've experienced, maybe from other churchgoers or other Christians in their lives. And so 
sharing with them the true story of the whole world. It helps to introduce the gospel in a different way. So good. I love these five things. And I love it because as we look at our culture, there's so many different worldviews. There's so many beliefs out there. There's people from coming from so many different backgrounds. And you can just feel like I can't interact with these people and I can't talk about God in ways that make sense. And what the research says is that you don't need to know all that. You don't need to be a missiologist to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. You can do one of these five things in a conversation. I don't care who you are. Every one of us could do one of these five things or a couple of them in a conversation. And even if the topic of God doesn't come up, if you're doing some of these in conversation, you're building trust like you're doing with your friends that will sustain the weight of these larger conversations. And so I think it's just so tangible, so practical and so memorable. Another thing that I think is really helpful, too, is the three core longings that the research surface. And you talk about these three statement stories and incorporating the three core longings into those. And so instead of going the gospel presentation route, this helps us have more of the gospel conversations. Explain maybe for us the three core longings and then how does the three statement story work in a gospel conversation? The three core longings, again, we surfaced from the research and we recognize that we're all created in God's image. And so we have this imprint on all of us, whether we know Jesus or not, God created us as human beings, that we all have three core longings. There's maybe others, but the three core longings we discovered was a longing for peace, a longing for prosperity. And that's not necessarily a wealth or lots of stuff, but it's just a sense of security and a happy, a fulfilling life. And then purpose, we all long to make a difference, have meaning and purpose in our lives. That's been really helpful for me because I think as I've even begun to identify those longings in my own life, which is kind of goes back to what you were saying a minute ago, it's that one of the things that I think would be so helpful for us as we put into practice some of those behavior changes, recognize these core longings is that we are not all that different than the people around us as far as those longings go. But sometimes when I would make a presentation, I wasn't really sharing the fullness of my own experience with knowing God. But one of the biggest changes I've made and with my friends that I, there's all different backgrounds, is that I'm talking very honestly about the places where I long for peace. I thought peace is like an absence of anxiety. And just like a couple days ago. I had something going on in my job and I just was overwhelmed by anxiety. I don't know why, but I was like the whole day I felt anxious and I ended up, I took a walk, I prayed, I just processed things with the Lord and it was related to my job. And these two women that I talked to, a lot of times we talk about our jobs and I have found that they want to know about my job. They want to know what I do. And they want to know when I have conflict. It's not like they want to know. It's just normal. Right. You're sharing your life, your friends. Oh, yeah. I have a job too. And we don't always get along and yeah, things like that. And that gives me a place of commonality because I have days, many days where I am long for peace. Prosperity. I think this is, again, with some of the same conversations I've had, we live in a neighborhood with 
to a couple that have moved here from India to be with their family. They're retired. They're really wonderful people. And she told me right after we met them that they had just moved here during the pandemic. And she told me that she was profoundly lonely, that those are the words she used. And I thought there's a lack of prosperity there, that she knows something's missing. We talked about that. We've gotten together with them various times over the years. And I think I feel that way sometimes too. I know what that's like to feel lonely. And I could enter into that conversation with her and purpose. I can think of so many different conversations I've had, even on airplanes. I remember this young woman, I talked to her about how we, in my job, we talk to people about who want to make a difference. And as I said that to her, she leaned over and looked at me and she said, I want to make a difference. So I hear that from people and think that we're the same. There's this longing in us to make a difference. And so what's helped then, there's three core longings. If we're prepared on a regular basis with three statement stories, we're even cultivating an awareness of our own longings, which are there. So I think that helps us connect with Jesus. It helps us connect with each other, but then it also helps us connect with the people around us in a real, we're connecting in a human way. That's what I kept thinking. You're a human being. I think when I used to think about sharing my faith, in the back of my mind, I don't think this was a conscious thought, but maybe unconsciously, I thought of it more as like being a light, being a good example in a sense. And those things are good to see where God is making a difference, but it's way more meaningful if they're seeing the cracks in the clay, if they're seeing the brokenness, and then they can understand your need for Jesus and like what you said, why you love him so much and what he means to you. And it also, I think, gives hope For someone who maybe they see their own brokenness, but then to start developing a friendship with a believer, it can be intimidating. Like, gosh, I could never live like that. Instead, what I'm hearing you say is you're allowing people into these places of need and your own pain points and hoping that they'll see those things and go, oh, wow, Cass, she struggles just like I do. And the better story is, She has a God who's her creator, who's meeting her in those places. Maybe I could experience that too. That's what I hope. And I thought about that, that over the years, that's not really, I would eventually communicate that with someone, but in a presentation mode, I was compelled to get the presentation out and not really relate as a human being. Like you said, we all need Jesus those longings are real in our lives. They don't go away once you become a Christian. It's still there. How we deal with them maybe changes. What's the format for the three statements? Is there where you can have three statements about purpose or peace and prosperity or how does that work? We were careful not to prescribe it too much, but in one, where are you experiencing some level of anxiety right now is one where are you experiencing it? That's what I thought of when I was thinking about answering this question is that I was experiencing anxiety two days ago. How is God meeting you? And how is this bringing you peace and hope for the future? I can talk about that, you know. I think we're guilty in a sense of either presenting one end of the spectrum or the other. 
the Instagram got it all together version of Christianity of how God's meeting me, or I'm just a hot mess. I'm just like you. What I like about what you're sharing is you're bringing both together. You're saying, I have the same core longings as you do for peace, prosperity, and purpose. And this is how God is meeting me in those places. That's attractive. That's beautiful. And you think about how, because we read in the scriptures, and I think all of this has helped me see that this is what we find in the Bible too. Like the Psalms are filled with prayers of longing and anxiety and a lack of peace and desiring a sense of purpose. Or when we think of Jesus and how he interacted with people, it's God interacting, he's human interacting with people that were broken like us and how he entered into their lives. And I think that's more meaningful to me. I think I've been able to see that in a whole different way as a result of some of these findings in our research, but in a deeper way than just these facts on a piece of paper. They're actually alive in the Bible. That's been encouraging for me. Well, Cass, thank you so much for being with us here today and sharing your insights and for all of your hard work in the area of gospel conversations. I think this book is going to be a tremendous resource for all of us who want to have real conversations with our neighbors and our family members and coworkers and people that God brings along our paths. And what's been so encouraging to me is that even though, like I said before, in this cultural moment, there are just some significant challenges that might come with us talking about our faith. There are things we can do and there's postures that we can take that are going to help us connect with our neighbors and have these conversations about faith in Jesus. So thank you again for being with us. It was great talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a comment with your thoughts on today's episode or let us know other topics related to neighboring you want to talk about or follow the link in the show notes to share a neighboring story with us tell us what you're trusting God for in your neighborhood and how you're seeing God at work. You can also follow Placed for a Purpose on Instagram, and you can help others find us by leaving a review, subscribing, and sharing this episode with a friend. Mm -hmm.